no humanity They fire at our family Our flow will be the remedy Cause water got no enemy Greetings and welcome to Out of the Margins. I'm sitting here today with Wakumi Douglas from Soul Sisters Leadership Collective. Wakumi, tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization. I am one of the co-founders and executive director of Soul Sisters Leadership Collective. I am a mom and a social worker, a black social worker. I am an activist and an organizer an artist and I like to say like a healer and healing right healing myself first and letting that emanate out soul sisters leadership collectives does leadership development work with systems involved girls and non-binary youth in Miami Florida and New York City to end cycles of poverty and oppression and we have four pillars healing social justice leadership and the arts we do youth leadership development work with young people, because that's essential. We do restorative and transformative justice work, which we're really excited about as abolitionist strategy that centers girls and non-binary youth of color. And we do community organizing and policy advocacy work, which we're growing and have some very exciting things happening with our Miami Black Girls Matter Coalition. Stay tuned. Legislative session 2021 is gonna be it for us. We're very excited about it. And then we also do some professional development, technical assistance for folks who want to learn more about our approaches to engaging young people and supporting community. So powerful and super exciting. We're talking about divesting from harmful systems and investing in the power and brilliance of our, young, our nation's young people. What would be the impact on your community if we collectively divested from the disruptive systems harming our young people? Yeah, I think the first thing that I see is signs of well-being. So I'm at a park right now in Dade County where a big, open, beautiful green space where children are just running freely. They're just freely running right now. They are laughing loudly and boisterously and no one is judging them for that. They're even getting into arguments with each other. Like I saw these two children just go at it and the adults just stooped down to their level, spoke with them calmly and quietly. And there was some kind of a resolution that came to be after the shoving match that I just saw with these two young people. And so I see the, the impact I think will be communities where where our young people really can be free and can be children can make mistakes and not have those mistakes define all their entire life um, but can have room and space to learn from those mistakes and for those mistakes also to be generative so for them to take that for community for the mistakes to be gener generative for community so for them to have something happen to them learn a lesson and then turn that lesson into something that benefits community and i see that happen with young people in our work all of the time so more opportunities for that to be how we all benefit from we can all benefit from young people's mistakes as opposed to all of us being harmed but by the current way we deal with their mistakes which is through um, punishment i also see i think our communities would also have I think there would just be a general sense of 
abundance and wealth in our communities, but not wealth in the hoarding, greedy, capitalist sense of wealth, but wealth in the sense of I have everything I need to thrive. Like think about if we were able to have school systems that are actually full of support staff, like mentors and social workers with robust arts programs, what that level of investment would mean for the future success of our children in their ability to pursue their dreams and then contribute into the community. I see the wealth that would come from that in community, right? Rather than folks having, being, and not to say that government shouldn't provide for folks, because government absolutely should provide for folks' basic needs. Folks also having options to be able to rely on various sources of income and various sources of wealth building and abundance rather than being pigeonholed and directed into just one because of a lack of investment in our dreams and our skills and our goals. The last thing that I would say is I also think about in terms of movement specifically, I think about the Black girls and trans and non-binary people who have been essential for forwarding movement and for groundbreaking moments in movement um, for racial justice and for social justice and for queer rights and for all the things that we care about and how investing in young people's leadership creates more opportunities for them to, to feel like they have voice and to step forward in movement. I think about like as far back as like Celia, the enslaved African girl who, you know, murdered the, the white man who was raping her, the person who owned her, who was raping her, who took a stand for her own body in doing that. And unfortunately was met with the harsh punitive response from the legal system that ended up hanging her for doing that and saying that she did not have a personhood to defend because she wasn't a person. But Celia is a very powerful ancestor in our work who believed that she was a person who wouldn't allow herself um, to be dehumanized in the way she was being dehumanized. So I think about ancestors like Celia. I think about ancestors. I think about um, Claudette Colvin, who was the teenager who defied segregation in Alabama before Rosa Parks. She was a young teen mom who said, I'm not getting up. You know, how often are... Uh, black girls and, and non-binary young people. Obviously, we all know about Marsha P. Johnson, without whom there would be no pride months, no pride anything. I think it's also particularly important for black girls, black trans women, black non-binary people to stake their claim in movement history and for folks to see and recognize our peoples towards justice. That feels, when you ask the question about what would be possible if we invested, that feels key to me. How many more Celia's and Claudette's and Marsha's would we have, right? If our young people were invested in deeply and how closer would we be to liberation? Um, I love that, Wakumi. And you're referencing the ancestral lineage of Black women and girls that, we, that this movement stands upon is really powerful. And today, you and I are actually talking only a couple of hours after the verdict regarding the officers who murdered Breonna Taylor. And that verdict just reveals the lack of value that the justice system assigns to Black women's lives. And there's such a painful um, fire 
that lives in this verdict right now for our movements and for, for all of us. I'm wondering, as you think about your role in dismantling these unjust systems, how do you hold indignant rage and grief in a day like today? Sometimes you can't. Like sometimes you can't hold anything else than what you're already holding. Like I know for me, like I, I don't have any more room for any additional feelings, information. <laughs> I don't have any more room. My cup is full. And if I keep trying to put more into my cup, I would not be able to be in this work. Like, sorry. I'm with you. I get it. The amount of emotional labor and the amount of trauma material that we're asked to withstand is just, it's entirely, it's entirely too much. And then we're asked to speak eloquently on podcasts and write budgets. And when our people are our people's blood is just running through the streets. I don't have a good answer for that question. I just think, you know, like as best as we can, we just, we just keep showing up in whatever way, in whatever ways that we can. Um, and, you know, pray that the people around us love us enough to receive us in the way that we show up and, and lean into the relationships where we know we're going to be received um, with that loving kindness and tenderness and do our best as much as we can to which so many of our people don't even have the privilege to be able to avoid relationships where there's violence and exploitation but as much as we can to to avoid those um and set boundaries with those relationships and uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really feel like I have a good, good way to respond to that, Manuela. I'm so sorry, Wakumi. And I'm sending so much love and care your way. I know this is, um, it's been really insane to keep doing all of these things and all of the work in the middle of the incessant like rampage of news and harm. And still, I just... I want to lift up that you still show up and we need to do more about extending care and support for organizational leaders and resources for the movements and the groups who are really holding so much space. I do think that unfortunately many people don't realize the power that lives in your, in your honesty and the fact that somehow y'all continue to work through this grief and and create more power and more change so when i when we're here holding space for conversations around dreaming and visioning it's work that y'all are like holding that's sacred and strategic and robust and visionary in the middle of the reality and i think that that's something that people don't get right right no they don't and um it's very hard to do this work, visionary work in this capitalist, harmful legal system-based structure because it just wants us to stay bound. It really, and if we're not careful, like the bind that the system has on us 
it, it's inside of us too, right? Like the prison is on the inside of us and then we will enact that on others. And one of the things that's really hard as a person who is a dreamer and who is a like empath and who is a revolutionary thinking person is how to practice liberation. Like, how do I practice liberation now in this structure that's like, you have to have this kind of insurance because if you do this or say this, you could get sued or you have to put it in this spreadsheet and you have to have this amount of this. And it's like, oh my God, like how am I supposed to dream and vision if I'm worried about spreadsheets and insurance and and being sued okay it's it's you know i just got off this call about um trying to build these great folks uh who are thinking about you know, the nonprofit industrial complex and how to create visionary transformative organizing outside of that structure and like i'm so here for that and i'm also like yeah but what's the roadmap like i think a part too sometimes of being a dreamer and being a visionary is like sometimes we're in the wilderness <laughs> like sometimes we have a dream and we're we're going there but we're but we're but where we are now like the dream we can see it but where we are currently located is the wilderness. <laughs> like we don't know where we are and we don't know how we're going to get there. And so much of like visionary dreaming work is about faith and hope in our ability to get there. And it's also um, one of our ancestors. I can like feel him, Baba Chokwe Lumumba. I got to sit at his feet when I was a very young organizer about a decade ago and he said the most important thing about being a Black revolutionary is an unconditional love of Black people, unconditionally loving Black people, because you have to unconditionally conditionally love Black people if you want freedom and liberation for Black people, because all of the pain, that's harm that's been inflicted on our bodies, the brutality and violence that's been inflicted on our bodies sometimes make us, makes us seem very unlovable. Um, and I feel sometimes that way about movement. We're in the wilderness. We don't know where we're going. It seems not possible. It does, we don't love each other while we're in the wilderness sometimes, but we have to maintain the sort of hope and faith and unconditional love of ourselves and our people and our movement in order to get there. It's like the only way um, because the the binds and the structures, the chains and the disincentives <laughs> to stay in this work are so real. I come from like black radical left. That's where I come from. And so coming from there and now being in this nonprofit thing, it's just very, very challenging. Um, and one of the things I'm thinking a lot about right now and like excited to be in more conversation with folks about um, in the coming months uh, is just, and similar, I feel like Manuela, you and Andres have been thinking about this and pushing this forward is like, how do we do our work from a healing justice, liberatory practices place? Because if we're gonna be in the wilderness, we may as well start dreaming and building this liberation while we out here, okay? <laughs> um, while we're trying to get to where we're going. So I don't know, those are some of the things I'm thinking about. And I feel like I'm not my most coherent or like eloquent right now, but I am really, I'm really at capacity um, with, and I think Manuela, like 
one of the things that's hard, a lot of times, last thing I'll say is like a lot of times visionaries and dreamers like me and Jessica Nolan, a lot of the other people who are going to be a part of this podcast, we become executive directors because like that's what, that's what's required of us to like be able to have a structure to do this work. But being an executive director is so hard and the demands on us are so enormous. I don't think anyone could ever understand the, the demands that are on us. Um, and it, it just makes it so that, you know, sometimes, I don't know, girl, I just, like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I just feel like I'm not showing up to this podcast with what you're looking for, but um, <laughs> this is what I have. <laughs> Brilliant. And your lived experience, Wakumi, something that none of us um, here on the recording side would ever understand. So I just want you to know, like, everything you shared is perfect because it's the truth. And it's rooted in like the rigor and excellence that soul brings to New York City and to Florida. Um, and it's also like really rooted in, in centuries old work of liberation. So there's no yeah. judgment here. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think know. the thing, a thing, the thing that I'm also thinking about too, like about why it's so important for, and I've been thinking about this for some time, like why it's so absolutely critical for our movement to have a healing justice and liberatory practices stance is that our movement wants to be led like by people like me who are directly impacted, right? Like I've been doing time with my father on the outside for more than 30 years. Like this is, you know, our movement wants to be led by people like me, but the conditions in which we're asked to do the work are so toxic, demanding, violent, and harmful that it, it's, it's, actually, it's actually almost, it's like astounding. Um, it's like the movement is interested in directly impacted leaders, almost like being martyrs in this work is how it feels. Mm -hmm. Like I should, I should ha I'm, I'm a person who's been attacked by the system and now I come into movement to dismantle the harm of the system and now I'm also being attacked in movement. How? Okay. <laughs> you know, and how is it that, like, what's our responsibility as, like, dreamers and visionaries and leaders to really undo and dismantle, like, these structures in which we do the movement work so that we're really not replicating the harm of the system? Um, and, and to me, that's why the, like, healing justice and liberatory practices stance is so key um, and I think a part of the reason why I, as an executive director, feel so heavy and feel like the work is so demanding is because I'm also working so hard to do the work from a liberatory stance. And there's so, it's, like, it's like pushing a boulder uphill. It's like pushing a boulder uphill and then somebody's got their foot at the bottom of the boulder. There's so much resistance. There's so much against us wanting to do this work in a liberatory way. There's so many hurdles and challenges to doing it that as a person who's responsible for in leadership it can be really really challenging and lonely and hard as you've been doing it in this context that that reveals right like it requires you seeing and knowing what are the harmful practices that healing justice uh, liberatory stances can interrupt how do you make sure you can still see them and also hold yourself through them 
while transforming them? Like just curious, what yes. are some practices? What are some of your guiding lights? What holds you down in the days in and days out of showing up in this way? One thing that I really admire about our indigenous um, First Nations and Aboriginal siblings and family that I always notice when I'm around them and I've been privileged to be invited into lots of really sacred indigenous spaces is the the laughter and the joking there's a lot of laughter and joking at least um, in, the, in the indigenous communities that I've been welcomed into in those communities and like laughing and joking about really hard things mass rapes you know what I'm saying like murders substance abuse there's laughing and joking about those things as a tool for healing and for somatic release. So we're like letting go in the laughing and we're also connecting with each other and building relationship with each other in that. And I remember the first time I experienced that, I was like, what is going on? Why this is not, this is not, that was a very morbid joke. That's disturbing. That was, those were some of the thoughts I was having. I wish I could remember the exact, some of the jokes, but as I continued to be in community, I started to realize and understand that this is a tool for liberation. This is a tool for healing. This is a tool for connecting. And so I think one of the things that comes up for me when you ask the question about just sort of how do we hold on to liberatory practices and healing justice practices, even when it's hard, is I stay really connected to joy and laughter and smiling and joking and like, you know, a little bit like black people, like we poke fun at each other. You know what I mean? We make fun of each other a little bit. It's like, you know, it's cute. It's fun. And keeping that vibe going has been very important for me, um, particularly in the connection of that. Cause I know sometimes in my role, I feel very, very lonely. And so in the connection of that, so that's one thing. I think the other, the other word that comes up off, like immediately is space, is how do we create more room and more space? And I mean that in terms of like concretely, if a staff member is talking to me and they're like, I think my deadline should be the first, I'll say, what about the 10th, <laughs> right? How do you create more space for yourself to have an emergency, to need a mental health day? to get sick, to have a bad period, right? How do you just create more space and room? When I'm feeling, showing up to a meeting, feeling anxious to get started, if we have a ton of things to do, I'm like, okay, breathe. Create space for the check-in. Look at the clock. I'll say, Wakumi, give yourself 15 minutes for the check-in. Let people arrive. Let people have space to say how they're feeling, what they're thinking, what they need. We just reconvened our youth co-founders. We have 14 youth co-founders of Soul Sisters. And we just reconvened them because they're getting ready to work on a special project together. And for the first, the first meeting was just like, I was like, okay, y'all, listen, I have to take care of my child. So y'all are in the Zoom. I'm going to mute myself. Y'all just talk. Okay? And I just left and they just talked to each other. And then I came back and I was like, okay, so this is what I'm thinking about this project. Let's meet next week. Like just creating room and space for people to be, just to exist has felt, uh, I'm noticing that when that happens, when we do that within our organization, people feel good. People feel like, oh yeah. The other thing that I'll say is um, that has been very meaningful and healing is like sometimes like owning up 
um, owning up and, and also for me as an ED, I'm noticing it's very healing for people when I own up around power. There's like stuff around power that's really hard for our people because of trauma. People who had power over them, abused them, molested them, harmed them. And so when they come into our organizational work and people have power over them, there's a lot of parallel process that they experience with people who have power over them, even if that person is not, obviously that, you know, well, some EDs are abusive, but um, if the ED isn't necessarily abusive, the power is, the power dynamics that are present are hard. And so I've been noticing that when I own up, take responsibility for something I notice that someone may be feeling, when I just name a power dynamic, when I invite others to take responsibility, that that's also incredibly healing for folks. I've been watching our staff be in a very deep and rigorous practice around taking responsibility. And I witness, I've witnessed the transformation, the trans the transformations that happen when people say, oh man, I really messed up and are and are able to really own that and get the lesson from it. I'm witnessing that heal things in people. Um, heal and also in one in one case I'm thinking about a manager who who did something to a young person who realized a, a youth staff disempowered a youth staff in a way that she was disempowered and for her witnessing herself do that to the young person the youth staff helped her to heal around what had been done to her and so just um, I'm noticing that as well in our work and making room for the repair and unpacking actually affords us the ability to stay connected mm-hmm. and, and grow together. There's such a fear around admitting either the error or just holding the power and, and, and manifesting it for good. It's a practice. You know, I definitely feel that sitting in a philanthropic role, it's a struggle. But, it's, it's, yeah. um, but we are closer to wealth. And, and we have the proximity to certain elements of power that our communities have been robbed of. And so that, there's a personal practice in there that I really appreciate that you named. That's only available if we actually create and dedicate space to divorce ourselves from like a capitalist orientation to time. That's right. And like actually prioritize our relationship and our human dignity. Um, and that we actually have to try really hard to get it right. And we're going to look. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think the other thing I'll say that is happening on our team a lot is there's a lot of grace being given. A lot of grace. The thing that I would let rub me or trigger me or take me there, I'm watching our team really beautifully. I'm so proud of them. And they're doing it for me. I'm watching our team be like, you know what? It's a pandemic. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> That's like the, like the mantra of you. It's a pandemic. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give this person the benefit. I'm going to hold grace. I'm going to, I'm going to lean into ease and I'm going to gently remind, or I'm going to gently bring up, this is the thing that happened. I'm, I'm curious. There's a, a real different way that we're orienting in relationships right now to each other that not all of us, but a lot of, of our folks are. And it, it's just so beautiful to witness. And I, I wonder so much, like people have been using this um, concept of this pandemic as a portal. I wonder so much if like there's a way that, I'm prayerful that this way that we're being with each other, the gentleness and tenderness 
is that we have actually walked through, stepped into a portal that we won't go back to the way that we were before and how we, how we held space and grace and care and tenderness um, for each other. I, I pray that that, la- that has a lasting quality because I think it did reveal to us all the things and ways we were being that were more harmful and we're out of alignment with who we say we are. Mm-hmm. So what's your dream and what does it take to really develop the leadership of uh, young people uh, so that they can be the future visionaries that you mentioned earlier when we talked about um, Claudette and Celia? Yeah, yeah we, we, we got to bring the love. We have to bring the unconditional love. Young people need to know that it doesn't matter what they say or do. you are going to show up with loving kindness and tenderness. And therapists have this phrase, they they call it um, unconditional positive regard. It's an actual phrase that therapists, it's a concept that therapists hold with their clients. And I think about that with our young people. What if all teachers and principals and staff had unconditional positive regard for black and brown youth? That's what we need. That's what our young people need. They need unconditional positive regard. We're not going to judge them. Wear the booty shorts. Cuss, cuss if you want to cuss. You know, talk about whatever you want to talk about. Twerk it out. Do what you do. We love you. It doesn't, we don't care. Okay? Like, we don't, we don't care. And that, to me, is the most important thing. And what I've witnessed in our work is when young people see that they can show up fully authentically in their shadow self sometimes not the cute stuff either right in the shadow when they see they can show up like that it it bonds them to our our staff and our organization forever forever they never forget us young people who have gotten locked up in the middle of being with us and they come out and we find out they're out through community grapevine whatever checking in. We found out a bunch of young people were out when we were doing calls, outreach calls during the, the, the pandemic. We called every young person we'd ever met ever. And we found out a bunch of young people were out and they remembered us. And what they remembered about what they always remember about us is y'all never judged me. Y'all always made me feel like I was okay. Like y'all never judged me. That's the thing that they always remember about us. So to me, that's the most essential. That's, that's our secret sauce um, uh, in our work. And then of course, it is the political education. It's introducing young people to stories of Celia and Claudette Colvin and many, many others who the staff, our staff have, are, 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 have better recollection of all of the ancestors who are unsung. And it's supporting them in learning around all of those heroes that we don't heroes and sheroes and, and our folks, sibling folks who we don't hear about. And then the other thing that I would say that is very powerful for young people, restorative and transformative justice practices and tools are very powerful for our young people to learn. One of, the, one of our young people, right at, when the pandemic hit, called me and was like, I just intervened in, a, in some violence between, a mom and my, between my friend and her mom. Her mom put her out. And, and then I went back and I knocked on the door and I said, can we all talk? And the young woman basically facilitated a circle. She facilitated a circle. That's what she did. She did a circle. She did a circle in her community. No police, no nothing. She completely helped for there to be no state involvement in this violence that happened between this mother and this daughter. And she used the skills that she learned, the circle keeping skills that she learned while at Soul Sisters. I was so 
freaking proud of her. And so those tools, the young people, they gain, they, they like, oh, they understand the usefulness of them for maintaining peace and well-being there in their communities, and they utilize them. And I'm sure, um, and I wish maybe Andrews or someone can help us with the data collection, but I'm sure that there are so many more stories of that happening where young people are using these tools in community to keep their people safe. Because ultimately, our people don't want to engage police, and we need to be safe. Both are true, right? And so these tools are supporting our young people and and staying safe, which puts us closer to freedom, right? So that's what comes up. And if if anyone was ever wondering, what do we mean when we say divest from police and invest in community-led public safety? These types of trainings and supports are, are what we're talking about. It's an alternative way of orienting to creating safety and it really is embedded in community and relationships and this, uh, this other vision. That's when right. you think about young women being embraced in this unconditional positive regard, um, it's actually affirming that we are not broken. That's we right. are already um, powerful, uh, deserving, uh, you know, capable. We contain everything that we need for our own uh, liberation. And when you orient to developing young people's leadership as um, they are already endowed with Mm -hmm. a completely different approach to the the ways to develop them and invest in them. And that's That's what I love so much about your work at Seoul, Wakumi, and the alternative to incarceration programs. Like y'all are getting, um, you're you're getting the young people because you're fighting to get them back. That's, that's exactly, thank you for saying it like that. That's exactly what we're doing. Um, and yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. We're fighting to get them back. Um, and we're not going to stop. And they know that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, they know. They, they, they act out. And they be like, but y'all still be around. And we're like, yeah, we will. <laughs> and it works. The fact that you're communicating a group of founders. How long ago did this uh, group of 14 young people come together? This is in 2015. I'm so proud of them. I haven't spoken to some of them in five years. Um, we're getting ready to celebrate five years. And um, all your listeners can stay tuned for our five-year impact report, which sounds really boring, but it's going to be really dope. Um, and um, a video and all kinds of things we're going to be doing, including this youth founder piece. They're creating this beautiful video poetry montage talk about what Soul Sisters has meant to them and they're thriving and a lot of them are in work focused on girls of color they're working two of them are working in um, uh, group homes that are specifically focused on girls one of them like was calling us from work and had to go attend to a crisis right in the middle of the call and what she said to me was it, soul sisters that's the reason why i'm doing this <laughs> um, and so you know they're they 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 i'm so proud of how they've become inspired to um just continue creating or being a part of creating well-being and thriving uh for girls of color um wherever they are even like the young woman who wants to do there's one young woman who wants to do biomedical engineering she's in a master's program doing that um, but she started a little black, black girl student club. Okay. Right. So her, so all of her black girl, uh, black women, young women peers in that program 
or have an affinity group where they're gathering to support each other and hold each other down in a field where they are not numerous, right? And so just, just looking at um, the power of their coming together, very powerful. It's really beautiful that the fact that they're still coming together after five years, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10, 20 years time, they stay faithful to that mm -hmm. vision of what Black Girl Liberation looks like to your point around what does it take a deep, deep faith. Thank you so much, Wakumi, for joining us. So grateful for you and your time. Sending all the love and <laughs> healing and appreciation for everything that you brought today. It was perfect. If you down for liberation, then I reckon we should meet. Slavery was not abolished, just polished and put in prisons. And the new Jim Crow word up to the resistance.